Well, welcome. Um, it's great to be in LA where the weather is, uh, is really great. I, uh, I always love it when I come down here. Uh, today's panel is on the current state of investing in the venture capital market. There's a lot going on. Um, we'll start with uh, questions after each of our panelists gives a short, uh, a short introduction and background to what they're up to. Rory, why don't you kick it off? Sure. Rory O'Driscoll, Scale Venture Partners. Great to be here in LA at what is definitely a Mark Suster production. <laughs> and the reason I say that is not the band or the environment, but as those of you who know Mark and have been on boards with Mark knows, the authentic sign of a Mark Suster production is we're starting 15 minutes late. <laughs> now, which is fine, Mark, but we have dinner at six, and between everyone in this room, we gotta claw those minutes back and make sure we get there on time. That's what I do in our investments. We're Scale Venture Partners. We invest in companies after they have product market fit and a couple of million dollars in revenue, usually with great early investors like Mark, with whom I'm in a deal, and we help these companies scale and grow all the way from there to an IPO. Deals we're involved with, companies we're involved with include Box, DocuSign, HubSpot, all of which we came in at roughly that stage. Great, it's good to be here. Um, I was here last year, and I'm impressed that Mark is a better year after year. Um, I'm from GGV, my name's Hans Stong. I'm the newest partner at GGV. We are a multi-stage venture firm, going from Series A to Series C, selectively in seed as well. We're very focused on internet, we're very focused on mobile, and we love companies that can go global. So one of our uh, early bets was this little company called uh, Alibaba, back in uh, 2003. Heard of and um, uh, I think some of you may have heard of it. Um, the, uh, the company was very small and the valuation was below 200 million. And today, it's, a, it's an amazing company. Um, I was an early investor in Xiaomi Mobile, one of the very first, and um, that was five years ago. And today, um, it's also a very interesting company. Um, we love to help companies go global. We love to help teams to go global. And um, uh, here, just to have a shout out to my partner, Jeff, who works with me on a lot of stuff here. And uh, we love what we're doing. Awesome. Byron Dieter, Bessemer Venture Partners. Uh, thank you up front for the hospitality and for the play in music. Uh, I'm going to demand that for all my speaking gigs in the future. Um, Bessemer is a global platform. Uh, I'm in our Silicon Valley office. Uh, we manage about $4 billion in assets uh, with offices around the world, uh, particularly focused on the hypergrowth sectors of tech, internet, uh, cloud, mobile right now. Uh, we've been fortunate to work with a number of the leading companies, ranging from LinkedIn and Yelp, uh, Pinterest, et cetera, down here. Uh, I just uh, left the board of Cornerstone On Demand after having worked with them uh, in the very early days through uh, IPO and beyond. Uh, and I'm back, hopefully, to, uh, to continue the trend with, uh, I think we've got about a half dozen portfolios in the, in the broad LA area right now. Excellent. Well, thank you all for, uh, for coming today. I want to first talk about the year, the past year, um, 2014 has been just an absolute banner year, just in terms of funding metrics, valuations, even VC fundraises has uh, made a big recovery. And this is in stark contrast to what was happening several years ago when things looked uh, not as bright. Um, where do you see the market today in terms of the investment ecosystem? I mean, I hear a lot about there being a bubble. What are your thoughts on that? Well, yeah, start with the first part of the statement where you said not as bright, you know, much brighter than it looked five years ago, and that's the whole point. I mean, the, the reality is many of the investments we made five years ago have turned out really well, and that teaches you you just got to ignore a lot of the noise. I mean, 
it's, you know, when, when things are euphoric, you should be more scared, and when things are more scary, you should be more aggressive. And it's kind of a euphoric time. Mm -hmm. So it is a bit worrying. I mean, you know, you listed deals done by venture capitalists, and you listed funds raised by venture capitalists, but, you know, the leading indicator, unfortunately, for a lot of this is exits. Unfortunately, the reality is, when things go really well, everyone feels really happy, money piles in, money piles into venture firms from LPs, money piles from venture firms into deals, because we all feel euphoric, and when you feel euphoric and you make money, you feel smart, it's a fatal conceit, but there's very little you can do to stop it. All you can do in the face of that is say, you know, the long-term trends are good, and try and position yourself such that the inevitable correction, which will carry off a few people, doesn't carry off you. Mm -hmm. Byron, do you feel smart? <laughs> I think everyone feels a little uh, smarter and better looking smarter. when things are rolling. <laughs> Let's go with smarter. Exactly. Starting at a low bar. There's a, I haven't yet crossed smart per se. Uh, it's, uh, most people have been right over the last few years. Um, the mediocre companies have, have had you know, good to great outcomes. The, the great companies have had fantastic outcomes. Uh, we certainly hope that will continue. Um, but the thing I would highlight is that the business performance over the last few years, the fundamentals have been extremely strong. Mm -hmm. If you look at the core sectors that I mentioned, um, these businesses are rocket ships. You look at the, the 41 pure play public cloud companies and they're growing on, aver on average at 40%. Now, these are $350 million businesses on average still growing at 40%. It's fundamentally ripping through software. You look at the stats on, on the digital media businesses, on the mobile businesses and things. You can argue what's fair value. Should Facebook have paid what they did for Oculus? I, I loved uh, playing with the VR demos out there. Um, who the hell knows? We'll all figure out in a few years. Is Snapchat worth you know two billion or twenty billion? I don't know, but it's a very valuable business, um, and that's the the fun time we're in. Uh, from a global perspective, I'll let Hans answer that because uh, there's been a lot more volatility, but uh, we're seeing it there as well. That you know the world is truly flat, and we're seeing our U.S. companies able to roll internationally faster than ever, and vice versa. We're seeing you know, all these names popping out of China all of a sudden. Uh, Hans was somewhat joking when saying no one had heard of Alibaba, or a few may have heard of it, but literally a lot of the world did not know of Alibaba until, mm -hmm. you know, the flip switch and, and this monster IPO landed in everyone's lap, mm -hmm. and people turned around and said, where the hell did this thing come from? What's going on now there, though, Hans? <laughs> uh, I mean, when Jerry Yan first went to China in 1997, the world had 50 million internet users, 5-0. And... Um, when I moved to China in 2005, uh, the world had about a billion. Um, during that time, most of the users were on PC, obviously. And fast forward today, it's three billion, and mostly on mobile. And, and during the last uh, decade, um, Alibaba went from five billion in valuation when uh, Yahoo invested, and everybody in China thought the valuation was crazy and nuts. That's clearly overvalued. The company barely had any revenue. Uh, how can it be worth five billion? So I'll get out as much as we can. Um, and now it's, uh, you know, 260, 250, uh, somewhere around there. Um, the, all the users that came up in China over the last uh, decade ended up being uh, 600 million people yeah. went online. And time spent on mobile, 3, 4x what it was on PC. Mm -hmm. So all our transactions are moving from offline to online. Mm -hmm. Now accounts for Alibaba's growth. And if we look at, you know, 10 years you know, in front of us, where will the fourth, fifth billion users come from? It will come from emerging markets, mostly. And all those people will use by smart, some iPhone, some cheap smartphones from China that's reliable, uh, like Xiaomi, and continue to grow. And that will fuel even more. Like Byron said, valuation, who the hell knows? But um, some of these companies are growing very fast at very efficient pace. They're not burning a lot of cash. 
that's different from 10, 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think the interesting, just taking the Alibaba thing, kind of just one of those lessons you see over time is be very wary of snap judgments, point in time judgments. I mean, you look at poor Jerry Yang, for a lot of time people yep. gave him grief, you screwed up, you know, Yahoo, you didn't really do it with Microsoft, all this noise, and the reality is, he did one deal that made him $40 billion, and you know, I say we don't hold anything else against the guy. Yeah. Right? I mean, what's huge what's your market cap now, Yahoo's market cap? Effectively, the Alibaba you know percentage and a bit more. So you, know, it, 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 you really only know when the tape plays out. And no one was, even as late was when Microsoft was acquiring it, no one was trying to acquire it, no one was saying, oh my God, I'm really buying Alibaba, but that was the hidden jewel. That's right. It's hard to know. If investment was easy and it was obvious when you did the deal, they really wouldn't pay us as much mm -hmm. money. Mm -hmm. and they shouldn't. Well, it's interesting what, what Hans elaborated on, the sort of the secular trends. But a lot of that logic, now the metrics are different, but a lot of logic is sort of similar to what, what we were hearing back in the bubble. It was, you know, the internet's going to be huge. You don't need to worry about monetization. It will, it will, you know, they will come. What are the differences you're seeing about today, aside from sort of just the metrics, because I think we're still early in this cycle, uh, from back in the bubble? What's, what's fundamentally different? Or is it the same? I think the key thing is monetization. You, you mentioned that topic. Before, it was mostly driven on advertising. And advertising works, you know, for the most part, great for companies with traffic in the US. But outside of the US, there's just not as many advertisers who are willing to spend that money because users are not clicking. And um, uh, in, in per capita spend is low on an absolute basis. So what ends up happening is that you got to be able to build transaction engine. If people take money out of the pocket and buy something, mm -hmm as a platform you can get a cut of it. That's the innovation that Japan, Korea, and China had to do because mm -hmm. they're just not enough advertising dollars around. So it forces coming to think about how do I get users want to pay money mm -hmm. um, for services, whether it's virtual items or a, buy a product or, or, or such. So when that happens, you have a lot more offline activities, which is still huge, mm -hmm. move online, especially onto mobile. That's something that, was, that wasn't there 10, 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. And that's the, most people don't realize that. I remember when I first went to China, the smart money in the US thought that e-commerce will never take off in China. There's no trust, there's no payment, there's no logistics. All the things that made e-commerce great in the US, it wasn't there in China. But what people miss is that if you live in the middle of nowhere in China, there's not enough <laughs> offline store to buy anything. You're happy to wait a, a month or longer for the stuff to be shipped to you because the alternative is zero. So when the alternative is zero, you're happy to spend the money because you have to. And people can put up with a lot of stuff uh, lower level customer service because of term zero. And that's a huge, huge, huge thing that people missed 10 years ago. I think in the US, I think it is not the same, mm -hmm. right? I think that, you know, people tend, you know, I hate the lines this time, it's different, and I'm not using it here. Mm -hmm. What's more exact to say is people screw up all the time, but they just screw up in different Butter. ways over time, right? And the reality is, if you look at where we are today, you don't have, there's a couple of things that point to the fact that it's not the same. First, you don't have the same level of excesses over valuation of early stage companies. I mean, I was on the board of a company with a billion dollar market cap in 2000 for an hour, and they had 10 million in trailing revenues, and we really had no business being public. Mm -hmm. Today, yeah, things are a little bit pricey, but seven times, eight times forward revenues for a hundred million dollar plus company, hundred million dollar revenue company growing 50%, mm -hmm. that's reasonable. Mm -hmm. You might be wrong by 40%, you're not just gonna be fundamentally wrong. Right. You don't have the same plethora of absurd startups, right, whereby you have, I mean, the mistake we made last time was we put lots of money into lots of different startups, none of whom could make it. Mm -hmm. The mistake we might be making this time is we're putting 
lots of our money into a much smaller group of really, really great companies mm -hmm. at prices where they might make it and we mightn't. Mm -hmm. That's probably, probably the aggregate right. venture bet. Mm -hmm. Not so much where we play, but there's been just a whole ton of $500 million financing mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. at very high prices. And you can be wrong there and make 50 cents on the dollar while the company succeeds. Mm -hmm. I think the last thing that to me is the best proof that we're not in a quote bubble is, if you think back to 2000, all the early stage companies who were going to take market share were valued highly. Mm -hmm. And all the big incumbents who were going to lose that market share were also valued highly. And not both of those things could be true. Right? Whereas in enterprise software today, the companies that we're all fortunate enough to be involved with are valued highly, and, and God bless the country for that. But the old line companies are in trouble. The market is saying, Microsoft, Cisco, HP, IBM, you're not going to get those dollars. So the good thing is, in aggregate, provided the trends are correct, there's enough money from the old guys' low market cap <laughs> to feed all of us. Mm -hmm. And there's a much higher probability that it can be you know, that you can work through these valuations to be roughly okay. So it's much more rational type of... Uh, in aggregate. I mean, yeah, there's no yeah. way Microsoft could trade at, you know, 50 PE and all the startups could trade at a 50 times revenue to take away Microsoft's revenue and both of those things be true. Mm -hmm. And that's what it was in 2000. Mm -hmm. Right. And I'd even add to the point, for the consumer businesses, there's the chatter on, you know, the Oculus deal or what's Snapchat worth or Instagram, you know, or years WhatsApp. ago. WhatsApp, um, that one I still wrestle with a little bit. But, it's, worth, it's, it's worth what they paid for, which is $19 billion. Hallelujah, it's worth it to them. Um, but, the, but fundamentally, uh, there are monetization models to put to those businesses. People beat us up for Pinterest all the time. How could it be worth that? Um, there are known monetization models that any one of these businesses, with their traffic, with their engagement, could employ today and be spectacularly successful financial businesses. Mm -hmm. And the reason why they're choosing not to is because they have even more ambitious plans of how they're gonna do it over time. Mm -hmm. And so the, the, there's an absolute business model, there's absolutely known economics, mm -hmm. and it's just a question of how and when do they choose to optimize it. And so it, uh, to emphasize the point, it's absolutely a, a what is fair value question against that. Mm -hmm. and, you know, that's, that's the art, that's the debate, what's the multiple, mm -hmm. but these businesses aren't going away. They're not going to zero, there's not gonna be the carnage. There will be this period of, wow, we overpaid, things go sideways for two, yeah. three years, mm -hmm. and you digest it. Exactly, I mean, if you look, Barron's did a retroactive, that, if you were around in the business in 2000, you remember that article they published around April or May, listing the last 100 public companies, how little cash they had, how little revenue they had, and how soon they're gonna go bust. And you read it with that sinking feeling of, oh my God, that's one of my companies, we're doomed. And they were right. They reprinted that article just recently, and about 98% of those companies went bankrupt, don't exist. You look at the last 50 IPOs, I think most of those companies make it, some of them become really significant companies, some of them get bought for good multiples, it's just not the same. So you don't see on the horizon a correction of that magnitude, or even approaching that magnitude. I and mean, one of the common, well, we, we have a lot yeah, of... No, no, I think we all said it could easily... You've got to use your words carefully. Is that correction and carnage both begin with C, but that's all they have in common. Um, <laughs> correction is defined in the stock market terms as a 10% decline. Many of these companies could decline 10% in a single day, right? Carnage is when they wake up and go, oh my God, what were we thinking? There's no business here. Yeah. I don't think, I think we're saying corrections, yes. Kind of valuations well, you're saying that, but not carnage. Well, I would say with private companies, valuations are sort of a fickle thing, right? There's no real way to value those companies. And really, it comes down to their ability to either sustain, sustain themselves with operating cash or raise money. And so what happened in the bubble and in 2007 is the window shut, and a lot of companies were, cut, were caught sort of uh, naked. So what I'm wondering here, I mean, I hear a lot of the commentary from investors saying prices are way overvalued. There's just too much money being raised. 
Um, is, it, is it a problem for companies today? Do you see, do you see the, the clouds on the horizon today for companies in two or three years that will need to raise money, have not gotten an exit? Eat while our d'oeuvres are being served. Yeah. You know, um, Good point. Raise ahead of, of what you're going to need is, is the actionable takeaway. Valuations are, are fantastic right now. It is a glorious time to be an entrepreneur. You know, don't over-optimize. Don't sit oh. back and say, I've got this spectacular valuation now, but boy, if I wait three more months, it's going to be you know, even higher. Mm -hmm. you know, trying to optimize for that incremental versus putting your business at risk if there is a 40% correction mm -hmm. um, just isn't worth it. You know, we, we've been entrepreneurs. You, you deal with so many trade-offs. You've got so many risks in the business that you can't control. Control what you can. The correction definitely will happen. But I think everyone said on this panel, it's, um, it's a 30%, 40%, 50% correction. But the companies that are efficient, mm -hmm. that can go global, especially on the consumer internet side, will still do well. Mm -hmm. And so we're seeing a lot of businesses that we're investing, the team is global. R&D may be here, but engineering development will be in China or somewhere in Asia. And the market they're serving is global. So on the cost side, they're very efficient at what they do. On the, on the revenue side, it's a global market. And I think the next biggest thing over the next 10 years is for companies that want to be huge, that be not just 10 billion, but even higher to reach mm -hmm. you know, 50, 100 billion in valuation, you have to be global. If you're not global, there's no way you can be worth that much. When you have four billion people that you can potentially serve, it's completely different economics. I, I disagree so, with yeah. part of that. Yeah. I think you can absolutely be a $50 billion business serving only the US. It's so, a, a big, valuable market. On, on, but, the, on the consumer side, it is so that, amazing. That, that, and and the pace of change, I mean, we're investors. Jeff and I work with uh, Wish, I'm on the board of, uh, of the company. And 15 months ago, they could be thinking about selling to Amazon and running out of cash. Now, potentially a member of the Unicorn Club, and the, they have three of the top 10 mobile shopping apps on Google Play in many countries in the US and in, in, in Europe. Yes, that, that, that kind, yes, that, and, that kind of yes thing and yes is, is what I yes, love. To, to, love make, to, 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 make it, to make it interesting, Hanzo, you, can, you can't say a generalization that totally. every US company needs to serve a global market. No, no, they, not, not every. But when I can, it can totally. be very, very, very special. Yeah, I mean, I think that the objective Absolutely. facts are that the software market is and kind of really kind of advanced tech market is still highly concentrated. Software, business software in particular, it's kind of the United States, Western Europe, and you have relatively small, very few software companies sell a whole ton of software in China. That's right? absolutely true. Conversely, and that, which is why the skew that you see in enterprise companies is there, conversely on the consumer business, you're exactly right, the largest e-commerce company on the planet is based in China. Right. So it's horses for courses. Different businesses have different dynamics. Yep. We also have this phenomenon called the Unicorn Club, which, Brian, you mentioned, with a number of companies you know, valued at over a billion dollars. And now there's a sort of a 10x Unicorn Club with companies valued over $10 billion, which is kind of a remarkable thing. Um, what are your thoughts on the top end of the market and companies reaching that strata of valuation? And really, from the companies I've talked with are really not the founders are not really interested in finding, going public or finding a liquidity event. So, uh, so we want more of them is the short answer. <laughs> um, and shout out, I think I, uh, Aileen's uh, here later today if she's totally. not here now, but uh, she did uh, one of the articles that uh, we've had a lot of fun with and sort of amplified the unicorn meme. Um, but uh, we absolutely think we're in a special time where we have these fundamental disruptions uh, around mobile, around cloud, 
um, arguably, you know, the, the social phenomenon tying into both those and as a standalone, um, you've got these, these combination events with these independent tsunamis sort of converging, and we are in a fundamental transformative, you know, stage in technology where <clears throat> the tide is rising in a massive way. And so there will be a long list of additional billion and multi-billion dollar businesses created. And, you know, for, uh, for many of them that are, are choosing to stay private longer, the good reasons include figuring out what the business model is, building predictability, working through strategic things. Um, you know, Snapchat should not be public now. They're a great business, they're a valuable business. They still need to do a lot under the private umbrella before you know, being subject to quarterly reporting. It makes a ton of sense. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of businesses that are overthinking it and saying, oh, Facebook waited, so should we. And that's gonna bite them in the ass if they wait too long. Yeah, I'd come in on that because I'd push you on the word remarkable. It's actually not remarkable that, the, that there are lots of billion and ten billion dollar businesses. That's what America does. It's actually pretty, I'm willing to bet GDP adjusted, it's a pretty consistent production of highly valuable businesses over the last 50 or 60 years. You know, I mean, you can go back to the 90s as a decade. You did produce eBay, Amazon. It wasn't a totally shabby decade here, mm -hmm. right? The thing that is remarkable is that so many more of them exist private rather than public. That's really the only fundamental change from before. Before you probably go public. I mean, Amazon went public at a 600 million dollar market cap. And I want to say 97, I remember having discussions, is it overvalued or is it not? I'm sure it's what we all knew, right? So the difference is, the only difference that makes this thing remarkable is a huge ton of that value creation is taking place in private hands for a whole bunch of different reasons. Changes in the public market, changes in people's preferences, the speed at which it's happening. There's almost not enough time to get organized enough to be a public company post Sarbanes-Oxley. Meanwhile, you're creating a whole ton of value, so you just stay there. Well, there's also, and I yeah. think a fundamental thing is, there's money flowing in at those valuations. Later stage, yes. I mean, years ago, venture would, would inter-venture capitalists pay over a billion dollars for, uh, I mean, I don't think you had venture no. playing in that market. Well, I'm until 2011, they were only uh, yes. about what, uh, less than 30 yes. company worth uh, over a billion dollars. Half of them were in the telecom infrastructure play that you know, all ended, most of them ended Badly. by 2011. Um, but from 2011 to now, over just in the three year period, the number had tripled. Um, now you're a multi-billion, yeah, it's nice, but well, you're when, when you get a 10 billion. You're seeing mutual funds, private equity funds and, come and, in. Exactly, yeah. so, so and, and also there's a lot of secondaries falling around now than yeah. before. There are a lot of funds dedicated to buy secondaries, buy uh, shares from, uh, from uh, founders, you know, that's, uh, you know, kudos to do DST and Tiger for, for starting that. Yeah. So this is very different. So what, what is unfortunate is that a lot of public investors don't have a chance to buy uh, these yeah. stocks. Only the institutionalized funds mm -hmm. investors get to do. So that's the only thing that's unfortunate. But for the private companies, they have a chance to do a lot of things that they can't do as a public company. Huge yes, difference. Totally. But I, I agree with what Byron said. Is it, it, It's a point in time. It's not a trend. People aren't going to stay private. Mm -hmm. I mean, yes, it's great. The mutual funds aren't doing this because they want to. Right. They're doing this because they have to, mm -hmm. right? And in the end, I mean, the, again, objective facts are of the 50 largest exits in terms of value creation in tech in the last 10 years, precisely two are M&A exits. I bought them, interestingly enough, this year. WhatsApp, stunningly up there at number seven, depending on how you measure it, and Nest at 3.2 billion. Most of the time, the big money happens on an IPO. Most successful companies ultimately go public, and the reason for that is fairly straightforward, is that you know, raising money privately 
is one investor, one day, one point in time. It's a great way to get capital. Mm -hmm. It's actually a pretty tricky and not a particularly useful way to value the business long term and allow the original investors to get out, right? At some point, all the mutual funds doing these crossovers are going to internalize that, which is getting in is actually pretty darn easy as a private company. Getting out requires a public being public. Mm -hmm. Because if you own 10% of a position and the stock is traded every day and there's liquidity and you're a mutual fund, you can get out. If you are still private, there's one transaction a year, maybe you get 10% of your position off, it just doesn't serve the purpose. So this is all an interesting and fun phenomenon, you can talk about unicorns and 10x unicorns, <laughs> but in the end, it, it, it's a point in time, over the next five or six years, most of those companies, if they do create value, will go public, as Byron points out, when they're ready. When the market's ready for them and they're ready for it. Byron, final word, any, any thoughts on that? Uh, agree? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> And we want more unicorns. Bring yes. it on. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with making large amounts of money. Awesome. Well, I just, I just realized that we're, uh, we're out of time. I want to I wanna thank our panelists. Already. Huh. Already. It was short and sweet. Boy, I got Mark mad. <laughs> uh, well, a big round of applause for our panelists. Thank you very much. That was